Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Catch new episodes of The O Show for free, available on all audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. For full video versions of the podcast, head on over to YouTube and StarWorldWideNetworks.com. The O Show is presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness is an inclusive, high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ Floyd Money Mayweather himself. The best group boxing workout in the market, Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara? Absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien, with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. a certain protocol no uh, not really. i mean no. i'm in the uk so like uh, there's all kinds of crazy stuff like you know the u.s border is still not open to anybody so like i'm staying over here kind of until that happens but i've been back and forth to the states three times this year and then i went to italy the other day and you know every time i come back here i have to quarantine for 10 days oh that's plus, cool. take, plus take three tests here and a test back and forth and stuff like that so i you know I've tested negative for COVID about 400 times this year already. <laughs> Have you ever gotten it? No. Oh, well, the, the ironic thing is, is I think I'm patient zero. <laughs> um, I left China with a cold on December 9th, 2019, brought it back to the States, gave it to a number of people in the States, and then gave it to my girlfriend who then took it to the UK uh, and then I went out on tour with Slipknot and got another cold in Milan, Italy, where it was like mostly affected in Europe. So yeah, if anyone asks, I'm patient zero. <laughs> oh my God. That's a lot, dude. That is a lot. So are you guys still touring with, you know, the bands you guys were with? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're all together. Yeah, we're all roadies for bands. That's kind yeah. of our background. So me and Diaz have a Fallout Boy tour coming up starting in about a month where it's uh, Green Day, Fallout Boy, and Weezer and the Interrupters. Okay. And then uh, I think Warren has some work coming up too. Yeah, the, the Slipknot stuff starts again. They're in the studio right now. 
Um, but the, the uh, summer in the U.S. starts, um, I think, August 11th or something like that with a handful of festivals. Uh, they do a headline run, and then I think there's Not Fest Iowa, and then a whole bunch of makeup dates and stuff like that that spans from 2022 until the end of time, essentially. <laughs> wow. So you guys obviously just came out with the first EP, you know, just to get right into it. How do, how do the three of you meet? Like all three of the bands you guys tour with kind of just merge. You guys were able to hook up. You guys are, again, like brand freaking new. Yeah, yeah. This is our, our second EP that came out about a week ago. Our first EP came out about six months ago. We're just putting out, you know, pushing the music out. But uh, I think I first met Diaz back about 14, 13 years ago on a tour. I was yeah. I was teching for a band called The Matches. He was with a band called Motion City Soundtrack. We were sharing stage right together. And then uh, a few years later, well, a few years later, about six years ago-ish, uh, maybe, maybe more, I met Warren when uh, we both started working for Linkin Park. And uh, that's when me and Warren kind of started jamming and writing together. And then we all went to work for Fall Out Boy, and Diaz joined our band as the bass player. Oh, my yeah. God. So you guys have known each other for a long time then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just, it just took getting, it, it took getting like all of our schedules kind of on the, like on the same page for us to kind of um, start doing this, like where we, we can be like, oh, well, we're all working for the same band at the same time. So like all of our off time is the same, so we can do all this music stuff of our own on in our off time. Well, uh, hello, COVID. That definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it helped it helped us get all our uh, ducks in order to then actually put out the music that we've been mm -hmm. working on so how long have you guys actually been working on material like you guys have said you've known each other for a while yeah just haven't had the time to actually like sit down and gather everything well it kind of started back in uh, so when me and warren were working for lincoln park um i was brad delson's guitar tech and weirdly which is not a normal thing that happens he got sick and i had to cover for him playing lead guitar for lincoln park and uh that kind of made me it, it it gave me the confidence to be like, well, I don't know, maybe I can write songs. And I knew Warren was a drummer. We started jamming. And from the beginning, it was like, ah, this is, I think, this is pretty not bad. This is good. This might even be good. And uh, so, yeah, we, we've been kind of working on stuff since roughly 2015. It was kind of a slow, slow kind of build. And, uh, and at that point, I was kind of playing everything except drums. But then when uh, after Chester's death, me and Warren were working for Fall Out Boy. And that's when we were like, Diaz, yeah, you're on the same schedule as us. Like, you're our bass player now. And, and Brian had just moved to Los Angeles, too, at that point. Yeah, so that, like, that, you know, that, you're around all the time. You're, you're in, bro. Yeah, that actually helped quite a bit. I mean, we, we still could have done it remotely. I mean, we, start, we sort of do it remotely anyway, like, especially like the beginning of COVID. Like, we were... I was recording from home. Ben was recording parts of, you know, stuff from home too. So like it's, just, it's possible to do it remotely. It's just not possible to play shows remotely. Not yet. How quickly <laughs> do you holograms? All that stuff like over zoom doing stuff remotely. Cause I feel like that's gotta be 10 times difficult considering I don't think anybody knew how zoom worked. Yeah. Started it. Like I'm, I feel like I'm a master at this now. I had no idea how to do this like 10 months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what's funny, well, too? You know, like sending me tracks all over the place like for years and years. You know, you'll, yeah. you know, you'll go to a studio, you'll do one session in one studio, and then you'll email files or FedEx a hard drive somewhere or whatever. So that element of it wasn't really like super new or whatever, but just right. like 
an, a format like this where it's like, yo, bro, what do you think of this part? Or, you know, did I comp these drums properly or whatever? Like that element of it, you know, didn't take so much getting used to, but it was definitely new. I mean, it's, really it's more time consuming to do it that way. Obviously, like right. if you're in a studio together, <laughs> you do a take and someone could be like, well, maybe we'll do do this this way or whatever. So like I would record stuff. And I would send it to Ben and Ben would be like, oh, can you just like do that again? It's like, you know, it, it is a little bit of a, a delay in getting it done, but it's possible to do it, you know, and people like Warren said, people have been doing that for years. I mean, we'll we just really, didn't do yeah. it over, you know, we, we weren't like sitting there on Zoom with each other, watching each other like do our takes. But, right. you know, 15 years ago, the band, the Postal Service won that uh, they, they didn't even know they were preparing for COVID and they perfected the process <laughs> of mailing hard drives back and forth. Right. So what's been the most difficult aspect of doing it remotely then? Um, it just, I think when you're jamming together, you, you just get a better vibe. Like you can kind of just get a vibe and an idea and it's like, oh yeah, let's, let's work with that a little bit more. You get a little more, when you're on a room jamming together, you get more happy accidents. Yeah. It's um, more spontaneous moments yeah. where you're like, Ooh, that was cool. I keep doing that. I mean, I might sit at home and play a million riffs and record little bits and pieces and forget about them. But if I'm in front of these guys, we might be like, oh shit, that's a really cool, like, just throw, you know, throw that into, into the mix somehow, you know? Something that you might think is dumb in the moment, somebody else hears and is like, yo, do that again. And so those are the things that you, that you tend to lose. So, so when it comes to your guys' inspiration for your type of sound, like, because you guys, again, touring with all these big, great, successful bands like Fall Out Boy, Slipknot, Corey Taylor is amazing. I've, I've talked to him a few times, insane mind for, you know, yeah. creating lyrics and writing stuff. Guns N' Roses, obviously, band of the 80s, you know, like <laughs> Lincoln Park, you mentioned, Chester Bennington, one of my all-time faves. Like when it comes to, you know, taking bits and pieces from other people and creating and molding your own style, what were some of the, the bands that inspired you guys to create your sound? In, in our songwriting process, I kind of tend to come come up with like the riffs first and then bring it to the rest of the band. And I mean, I'm a sponge for like anything that I'm around at the moment. Uh, plus, our music is very guitar riff oriented. So I get a lot of inspiration from like just 90s alternative rock. But like, yeah, I can hear like, especially in the earlier stuff that we wrote when I was working for Linkin Park, I can hear that influence all over the stuff, even if it's not super obvious. Um, I also have become really good at completely ripping stuff off, with, uh, but changing it enough that you can't <laughs> tell it's ripped off. You don't know that this is secretly a Van Halen song, because it sounds You'll nothing remember. like Van Halen. Well, now I know. <laughs> yeah, but you don't know which one. But you're going you're gonna to search for it now. You'll be like, oh, now I know what that is. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at things. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to not taken a little bit of what you're around you know like i did a i did a short tour with like with uh stone temple pilots and um you know just being around and as a bass player being around uh robert he's such a he's such a great bass player that like after the tour i was sitting around like learning his riffs and stuff and i'm sure that had some sort of influence on what i was playing later or what i was you know things that i was bringing to the table just because i was like wow i'm like that's really cool the way he does this or does that and it's hard to like when you're around so many like really good musicians, it's hard to not pick that up, you know? Now, do you think it's more beneficial for you guys? I mean, obviously it is in a lot of retrospects, but, you know, being around all of these great, you know, successful musicians that obviously have a great mind for not only their music, but the industry as well. Do you think that that obviously benefited you guys hearing that and 
learning from those experiences as opposed to just, you know, taking from what you knew, listening to music and creating it on your own? You know, like, do you feel like getting to know some of these people who have obviously made it big time kind of helped mold you guys into what you're trying to do moving forward? For me, one of the sort of, I don't mean this in a shitty way, one of the biggest inspirations was kind of realizing that a lot of musicians that I work for are just kind of like mediocre musicians, but they're really good songwriters. Because I used ones? to think like, which ones? <laughs> let me make a list and I'll have a top ten list. No, but just realize like like oh, you don't have to be like. I, for a certain point, I thought like you have to master the guitar and then you can write a song. And it's like oh no, you can just be pretty good at guitar and songwriting is a different muscle, you know. Um, so I find I found that very inspiring once I kind of um, being around you know a lot of these people. Yeah, I learned a lot I, about I, what not to do. Like, you know, if you if you have like, you know, you sit in a band, in a studio all day and you watch somebody struggle through take after take after take after take and just not able to get it, or you got to go, you know, work a bunch of Pro Tools magic in order to make things work or whatever. You kind of like, but you're like, okay, well that didn't work for this guy. It sure as hell not going to work for me. So let me try to when when it's my turn to do that, let me do my, you know, circumvent things a little differently. Yeah, you get right. to be around. You get to be around the process a lot more when you're working for musicians in and out of the, in and out of a studio. So you kind of see how like what works and what doesn't. And um, you know, like I, I've been in other bands before too, but just like constantly being around music and constantly be, seeing how different people different people approach their um, recording or their songwriting. It's it definitely you you take all that in. You learn from all that. Just and you know, outside of your own personal experience, you know. Yeah, you're kind of like a sponge, kind of like a fly yeah. on the wall when it comes to those things. But at the same time, you have your own style, like you, like you totally. said, you know what not to do. Yeah. As opposed to just being like, okay, this is how they got there. That's got to be, you know, the recipe. You know, like everybody has their own thing that's going to get them. Somewhere. Yeah, you learn a little bit of everybody's sort of craft. You know, like just being a Fall Out Boy writing great, you know, three four minute pop songs. It's like, oh, you kind of see like a little bit of how their formula works and that seeps into your brain totally. a little bit. And I think when like someone gets as big as someone gets, whether it's a Fall Out Boy or a Linkin Park, I think, you know, with Ben, we were saying before, like you could be a mediocre musician, but a great songwriter. I think Kurt Cobain fits that bill. I think he was not the greatest musician, guitarist of all time, but obviously wrote kick-ass songs. I think he was a better musician than he let on to you. Like, I think it also, sometimes it, it goes with the times too, because it's like, I don't know, like I wouldn't start like a total shredding like band and expect it to be pop friendly, you know, because that's just not what people are listening to you right now. Maybe in the eighties, that was cool. Like you'd had, you know, you had all the glam metal bands playing like whatever. And I feel like maybe, Someone like Kurt was probably like an you know he was an an okay musician, but played it down a little bit because that was just of the time you know that was just like grunge was about not being the best musician and still being able to play and whatever so that's and just, like, I, they became the number one band in the world so. yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna ask these all these guitars that are sitting behind me right now back there um, actually belong to Butch Vig uh, the producer of of Nevermind. So maybe I'll, I'll go there when I drop them off today because I just worked on a bunch of them for him. Uh, I'll ask him, was Kurt a good musician or <laughs> did you have to dumb him down a little bit? You know? He's like, actually, that's not him playing on the album. So <laughs> yeah, nobody like, knows. It was it. actually me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was all girl. It was all girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
He, he held the glue together. That's funny though. Butch Vig is he is he a nice guy? He seems he is literally one of the nicest people ever. I did you know so I met him when I did a tour with Garbage in 2016, and he you know he's a drummer for Garbage. So he has beyond having his own multi platinum band has produced all these records that I grew up listening to, and it's like. He has earned the right to be um, a jerk if he wants to be, and he's not. He's, like, literally the nicest dude. Like, I hadn't seen him in probably a couple of years, and I just went by his house and got the guitars, and he was, like, chatted with me for a while, just catching up. And, like, he's – he's um, that's a quality dude right there for sure. I mean, you don't want to waste his time. I mean, at that – No, I didn't either. I didn't have to get out of there. <laughs> I was like it's, – it's still intimidating even though I know him. I'm like, this is still intimidating to be around someone who's, like – had this much influence on popular music, you know, it's pretty, I mean, it's at, a pretty at that stage in his career, he's probably, you know, growing up dealt with people who weren't as, oh, yeah. as he was. And then finally got to that point where it's like, I'm not going to waste my time unless you have the exact same, you know, similar mindset that I have when it comes to creating and making. Sure. I th- I've also first started out, you know, before the three of you found each other and knew that you guys were on the same page. I'm sure you each individually, you know, started bands at a young age and they, they just didn't work out because the mindset wasn't there. How, how many times did you guys go through that and like talk, kind of talk about like the adversity that the three of you guys went through individually before, you know, getting the gigs that you got to the point where you guys came together and formulated your own stuff? Well, for, for me, uh, who plays guitar and sings in this band, I had never really tried to be in a band before because I just didn't think I, that, that I could do it. Uh, I know their story is a little different, but this is sort of like my first attempt other than my 90s alt rock cover band that I had with my friends that, you know, that was just for fun. But uh, but yeah, for me, um, I was just like uh, being in a band is dumb. I, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. And then it's, you know, so far this has worked out pretty well for me. Uh, but I know the other guys, they have their band backgrounds different. Yeah, I was in like even through like in high school and college, like I was always in like three, four bands at a time. So I was just like constantly gigging. Like my brother plays upright bass and he and I were playing jazz gigs all over the place. And so it's just like, I've been in 60 bands in my lifetime. And it was just like, you know, the, the whole element of like, you know, start a band from scratch, write a bunch of music, release some music, play a bunch of shows, whatever. I mean, is super tiresome. And to do that 45, 50, 60 times, when we approached this, Ben and I, it was like, yo, dude, we got some time off. Let's just like hang out, write some music and see what happens. And like with that whole, like not pushing like this crazy element of, we want to be super famous immediately. Like, you know, <laughs> that, that, that like, you know, uh, took a lot of the pressure off. Yeah, I, I kind of had the same experience, like, growing up, um, you know, I guess I started really playing in bands in, like, high school, and it was always, like, a weird combination. There was only, there's a limited amount of musicians in my town, like, you know, I grew up in a suburb on, in, in Long Island, and it was like, okay, there every band was a combination of, like, the same 20 people, kind of like, all right, I'm in this band with this guy, but that's, like, a different version. It's like, you maybe switch one member, and it's a whole different band, and you know, that that's like how you learn how to play with other people. And then the first band I ever took seriously, you know, we were like, okay, we're going to tour. We're going to do this. We're going to, you know, and you, you, you make, you know, you get your bumps along the road where it's like, all right, I have to learn how to get along with everybody in my band. It's like a family, you know, like now, I, I didn't, you don't really think of it that way until you're not at home until you're like halfway across the country playing shows and like, trying to put out a, you know, write music to put out a record and all this stuff. So like 
that's kind of my learning process for it was kind of the same as Warren where it's like, yeah, you know, I've played in like a million bands, but only a few of them really stuck. And those were the ones where that, those are the real um, like learning experiences for me. Yeah, that's when it was just like strictly about playing music for the love of playing music. Right. Right. Like, and, 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 you know, that's what you, you know, when you do that in, in high school or like later on and, you know, nothing that we took too seriously where it was like, oh, uh, we don't even care about recording. We just wanted to play. That's that's a, a, a different thing. But then, when you know, I was doing bands that were like, we have to, like, put this record out. We need a label to promote it and whatever. I mean, it, it turns it into a little bit of a business. And that's something that being around um, bigger artists has taught me a little bit too, like how they approach that. So it's all, I mean, it's all, yeah, it's always like a learning experience. I think it's also given us like the opposite approach to this, where it's like, we just want to focus on songwriting and putting out, right. you know, kick-ass tunes, but it's the opposite of like, Oh, I don't want to tour and try to make it. Like we all have really good jobs working for bands that have already made it. <laughs> so I it's mean, like, it but would be cool if we can parlay too. that into right. skipping the uh, early step of like touring in a van and trailer, like sweet, we got the main support slot on an arena gig. Awesome. I will take that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think it's for now it's like switched where it's just like, we love playing together and playing live shows. Um, but it's like, let's just keep writing amazing music and hopefully get that out to people. And then if that dictates, Hey, there's a demand for you touring then we go do that so at what age did you guys you know because early on you mentioned playing for a bunch of different gigs with a bunch of different people like when did the business side set in because like as an outsider like my brother's a musician i'm more of just a journalist i can see it from the outside you know people say the mute or the the business side of music can get really toxic what mm -hmm. have you, been your experiences with that on that forefront um, I think that I sort of noticed, especially as it got to bigger bands. I mean, when I first started touring, uh, there was one band that was, uh, I was with a support band and they were headlining. And I used to think like bands are like, they're just best friends going around to see the world. And this one band that was, they had like a big radio, yeah, they had a big radio single. And like, I was talking to one of them and sort of realized like, oh, they hate each other. They just happened to like be three guys that started writing songs together and then like got a record deal and have a song on radio. And now we're just like, this is just our business that makes us money. And as I've seen bigger bands be like that too, where it's like, oh, you know, the, the band members might not be as into it anymore, but it's their job and they don't know how to quit their job. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to see that ever happen to me. Um, but like, I've seen that with bands where they're just like, you know, it's, it's their corporation and they're just figuring out how to keep it going. You know, the first, the first band that I did, that I had that did anything significant, like put out a record or tour you know, that was in late nineties, like ska punk boom. So it was a ska punk band. And, you know, I was in the band with one of my best friends from high school. I've known him since I was eight years old and we're in this band together and we're getting on each other's nerves because we're touring nonstop. And you, you know, that was the first time I realized I'm like, God, this is like kind of a business too. Like we're trying to run this business and we're trying to keep ourselves on the road and keep ourselves paid, which was like a very minimal amount of money, just enough to get by. But, you know, we were we were luckier than, you know, 99% of bands that never get to do that and never get to even take a dollar off of, you know, what they do. They just do it because and they lose money because they love it. And we were doing that for a while and then things got good. And we also just got on each other's nerves. And like I think the best thing in that situation 
that could have happened is we called it quits before we hated each other. And I don't want to be that band that's like, oh, like we're not friends. We just do. This is a business arrangement, you know, like that. That kind of sucks when you find that out and it kind of ruins the uh, the illusion, kind of um, kills the magic a little. And I feel like when everybody realizes it, it's like, oh, you can't really go back to the way it was. Yeah. And especially when you're, I mean, you become like a huge, huge band, it is a lot of it is is business. Like you think like, I mean, you see like a like a Guns N' Roses out there making half a billion dollars on a tour. Like, obviously, like you st- if they hated if they hated each other, they would stick it out for that kind of money. Like, I don't think any reasonable person would be like, just leave that on the table, you know? Well, look, I mean, look at LP, like, you know, you know, Chester was a very key part of that band. He's no longer here. That money making machine is still generating an insane amount of revenue for the remainder of those guys. Yeah, it's a business. It's a it's a you know, it's a company. Your songs are a commodity at some point. And it's like it's hard to um, it's hard to see it when it becomes like less about the art and more about the product, you know, and it's like. There are plenty of songs out there that are just whatever artists just shit them out. And that's, and they're out, you know, they're out in the world and they're popular on TikTok for a week or whatever. And that's it. But I mean, there's still an art to that too. Like if you removed all the business of it and all the, whatever the metrics that people follow, like, you know, that stuff is like, it's still an art. Like I couldn't write a song like that. And those people probably couldn't write a song the way we do. So it's everyone's got their, you know, their niche. So working for some of these bands, I feel like there's a lot of big egos. Like Axl Rose, right off the bat, I feel like the guy's got a massive ego. He's he's fine. I mean, he's a one of the biggest rock stars of our lifetime. Right, exactly. And he's saying, definitely, like, but he's definitely chilled out. I mean, he's and you know, we're talking about a rock star who's now in his fifties and is still doing three, four hour shows. And I mean, he if he's if he's you know who he is, he's earned that right. Right. But. I've had interactions with him and he's totally cool. Like he's a, you know, I'm not saying I, I'm sitting down with him to that dinner every day, but you know, you run into, I'm, I, you know, that you're on this big tour and you see him on stage, you see him around and he's totally cool. Like if he's, if he's that way to someone else, I don't know. I mean, I don't deal with it personally. So I also got to a point in my career, like I have worked for some of those uh, people that I'm um, like F this guy, but I've gotten to a point in my career, some working for a band like Fall Out Boy, like everybody in that band is just so nice and easy to work for. I'm like, right. That's, I don't, I don't want to work for bands that are a headache anymore. I mean, for a big enough paycheck, I will, but like, it's like, yeah, I like these guys because we all get along and there's, there are no egos and it's just easy to, easy to deal with. That's where I'm that's at a, in my life. That's a good like lesson to, to learn that from, the artists you work for, how to treat the people around you and how to treat your crew and how to, you know, your fans or whatever. Like I, I find that like, honestly, the bigger bands, like the really like mega huge bands are generally pretty cool. And it's mostly, I mean, I think mostly it's because you're under the public microscope so much that if you, if you do act up, people are going to find out. But you get, you know, kind of bands that get their first taste of fame or whatever, and they're kind of jerk offs. So you're like, don't, and you know, I don't, you know, I'm in a position now, and I think Ben and Warren as well, like we've worked for big enough artists, we can kind of pick and choose our battles. So like, if I know that someone is notoriously like kind of crappy with their, 
their people, just avoid it. You know, I don't need to work. I don't need to be involved in that. Yeah, I mean, that seems very kind of, again, like you do it for the love of the music, but at the same time, when you get big and you're making all this money, I feel like it shouldn't be as toxic because you are comfortable, I feel like. You're in the public eye, which is the one thing, like, yeah, if you act up, you're kind of in the doghouse for a while. But Oh, yeah, you get canceled these days. That's it. <laughs> yeah. You cancel in a second. <laughs> a lot of that has to do with, like, what age you were when you got famous. You That's know, like also true. part of me too is like, man, I wish nobody got famous before the age of 27. <laughs> like <laughs> that seems to be a good cutoff, you know, but, uh, yeah, you're yeah. in suspended animation. Like these dudes who get famous when they're like 19 years old, they're 30 something years old and they're mentally still 19. Cause they've been handed everything for, for, you know, forever. And like some people are well-adjusted. They come out of that well-adjusted and other people don't, you know? I've never had that opportunity. I'm well past that age. So like, I think I'm, I'm just the person I am now because I, you know, of the things that like I picked up from here and there, but you know, I, I could, I could say all I want that I would never treat someone like that. But I don't know if at 18, you handed me a suitcase full of money and put me on TV. I probably could have been a jerk too. You know, who knows? I mean, it's a lot. You saw it with Cobain, obviously, couldn't handle it. Billie Eilish was what seventeen when she got huge. Just a few. Yeah. Very interesting to see what her turnout's going to be ten, twenty yeah. years from now. You know, she seems pretty well adjusted. You know, I, and I have friends who work for her and tour with her, and they they're all like, she's, you know, she's pretty down to earth. You know. Mm-hmm. So I mean, people like that. Hopefully, like that sticks. You know, and that's like. I think we we were able to avoid those pitfalls because we're around it all the time so we see how like what like again it goes back to like learning like what to do and what not to do you know like like whether it's recording or acting a certain way or right to go back to you know being a sponge being that fly on the wall when you guys are at these gigs not necessarily like learning their music styles but learning how they behave as human beings Mm -hmm. taking away what's good and what's not good totally so, you know, moving forward with your guys' music, because, you know, to touch on, like, some of the new, like, obviously, the Billie Eilish's, the Post Malone's, whether it's rock, rap, hip-hop, and different whatever, I feel like t- in today's day and age, and I've talked about this with a few musicians, you know, you guys put out one EP there, one EP here, one EP in the future, as opposed to, like, a solid record of 12 to 15 songs where you have three hits and then 12 other songs that are kind of just there. Do you think, like, the way of distributing music in that regard, like, as opposed to, like, an old-fashioned 12 to 15-song record to, again, just putting out one single at a time is more beneficial? It's uh, the industry, especially even in the last like two years, it's just changed so much because of streaming and Spotify being the biggest, you know, music streaming service in the world. Everybody's kind of trying to chase the Spotify algorithm. Like uh, Spotify is such a dis- music discovery uh, kind of app uh, that you're just hoping like, oh, I hope my, the algorithm adds my song to this playlist. And when you put out a single album with 10 or 12 songs, you're the 
you're lowering your chances of, you know, having a, a runaway algorithmic hit. Uh, so I think it's just easier. And nowadays, too, people are very much like, what's what's out right now? What's coming out this week? And you forget about yes. stuff super quickly, too. So it's just it just the way I hate how music is right now, but it's just more beneficial to release things in um, snacks rather than a whole meal at once. Yeah, that's totally like people's attention spans are just just because they, they have access to everything now. So it's like, why would if you have access to every song you could possibly imagine, like, why would you stick with one thing that, you know, back in the day, like I'd go buy a CD or something that was 15, 16 dollars. Like, I better listen to that thing a lot. Like, I think I forced myself to like a lot of music that was probably I'd be like kind of on the fence about now because I had paid money for it. But now it's like I'm not saying music is disposable, but because people, you know, there's so much out there like you really kind of have to put your best foot forward and you say like, all right, we can release these four songs and these are our four like bangers for this, you know, out of all these songs. And hopefully it doesn't get lost in the mix or hopefully people just can consume that much. Like Ben said, it's a snack, not a full meal, you know? I, I definitely feel like in this day and age coming out with one hit at a time, you know, a song like you, you guys have probably written a ton of material, but you've picked, you know, a few songs here and there to put out that you think are the best and that will, you know, be consumed in the best way possible. You know, you were talking about, you know, kind of like the, you know, kind of like the algorithms of, of putting out songs and, you know, giving them that snack, that little taste of what you guys are, are, are becoming, you know, do you feel like it's, a lot, you, I mean, obviously it's a little bit more difficult in today's day and age putting out music, but like, how do you determine and how do you guys think, you know, a hit becomes a hit? Is it, you know, one person listens to it one at a time, and then there's obviously, you know, the promotional stuff, people will promote it for you. Do you think it's a mix? Like, how do you think, you know, a song, like a hit song, gets to that point where millions upon millions are listening to it? Yeah, there's, I've thought about this a lot, and just even the past, like, I remember hearing a, a statistic one time i don't remember exactly what it was but sort of saying like a billboard doesn't really have an effect until you've seen it 40 times you know so it's like you kind of have this like build up and i think any song any song above a certain minimum level of quality can be a hit if it just gets put in front of people enough, you know, and people are like, Oh yeah, that you have like, you know, slowly people start, they hear it a few times and then maybe they have some sort of like, they hear it during like, uh, you know, Oh, when we were on summer break and it reminds me of this and people start building emotional responses to a thing. So yeah, I think it's just really about just get having something get heard over and over again. Uh, there's, you know, a cultural part of it too. Obviously there's certain sounds that, um, you know, right, right now rock isn't, uh, very out there, you know, people aren't looking for rock, but we've also kind of said, or I've, I've jokingly said, I'm like, we're trying to be the Nirvana of bringing back the Nirvana sound. <laughs> That's a great way of looking at it, man. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like rock's definitely taking a back seat and I don't know why, like this generation's music, not that it's bad. There's some really talented people out there. It's just not for me. I don't know if it's for you guys. Like if you guys can get into like the modern day rap it, and pop stuff. It ship it shifts around. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll I listen to whatever. Like I'll just you know I I'll, I I have to. I feel like I have to stay in just because of my because of what we do for a living. Like we kind of need to stay relevant as far as like 
who are the new artists because like they, you might just be working for them one day you know like whether it's a pop act or a rock band or hip-hop artists because you know a lot of them have have musicians live musicians that you know play with them so like you constantly have to be keeping up with that and like is it something that i listen to all the time no i mean pretty set i'm pretty set in like what i listen to so like i always go back to the same stuff but i you know yeah it's not the most rock is definitely not at the forefront right now but it's still out there and it's still alive it's not um it's not completely gone and there are plenty of rock bands still charting it's not people say like it's rock is dead or whatever but it's not it's definitely not well, there's a lot of like rock elements that are also creeping their way into, you know, the, the modern day stuff. I oh, mean, sure. You know, uh, Diaz's Boy, Machine Gun Kelly, you know, <laughs> or Lil Peep. Like Lil Peep was like, you oh, know, yeah. some dude who like crossed those two worlds amazingly. And there's there there are a lot of elements of that still around. Are you solely rock? Are you solely hip hop? Are you solely, you know, pop or electro or whatever? I mean, it's just like, no, everybody's you know, intermingling all of these different styles and the rock element will never die, but will it get, you know, woven through, you know, every single genre until it's exhausted? Probably. Right. The question is if there's going to be a giant movement again, like there was the grunge movement or that late eighties movement. Cause like, it's going to take a band like you guys to just blast off and break through that barrier. Or it's going to have to be a guy like Post Malone. That's going to have to bridge the genres together in order yeah. to bring that style back. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm still an old, old, old dog. I don't want to learn new tricks. I just want the nineties to come back where it's just <laughs> like maybe one guitar, maybe two guitars, bass, drums, and vocal, and just fucking make some noise and be loud. When you start getting like modern pop elements in, I'm just like, ah, oh, you're making it a little more boring to me. There, there are bands out there that are doing that or doing like nineties inspired kind of, you know, rock, just straight rock bands or, you know, I guess people call them like post emo or whatever. And they just, and it's, and it's funny because they're, they are just like younger kids. They're like 19, 20 years old playing. And like, they're discovering this music as if it was classic rock, which I guess technically it is classic rock. <laughs> um, so they're, you know, and it's like me in high school playing like Led Zeppelin songs, you know what I mean? It's like the same gap of time. So like that much time has passed and now they're like, Ooh, this is pretty cool. Like Soundgarden was pretty cool. And like they're learning to play riffs or like they're learning to play like shoegaze pop, like, you know, My Bloody Valentine or whatever. And like, and like when I hear that, I hear these bands, I'm like, whoa, this sounds like new but old, you know? And that's cool. I'm glad that it's has that staying power, that it's gonna keep coming back. You know, whether it's you know, and it's so it'll make you feel a little old. You're just like, whoa, like okay, that was cool 25 years ago and now it's cool again and everything kind of goes in that cycle. So whatever. So what inspired you guys? Like what kind of resonates with you guys when you talk about, you know, alternative rock? Like obviously Ben, you're a Nirvana guy. It sounds like anyways. Yeah. uh, I'm trying to think of like, I mean, I was super into Weezer back in that era. One of my favorite bands is the Toadies. Just anything that was like guitar riff oriented, you know, where like, that's what, I mean, with our band, I usually, I start off with like a riff. I'm like, oh, this cool. This sounds cool on its own. Now let's build around it. 
I was in a Primus cover band in high school. So like, Me too. Know, that, yeah. <laughs> so that like, that whole like rhythmical, just like pounding, you know, I mean, obviously being a drummer, if the, if the drummer sucked in the band, I wasn't too into it. So it's just like, you know, I got it really in a sound garden <laughs> and was super, super stoked when Matt joined Pearl Jam at one point, you know, it's just the, uh, the the those like percussive elements just kind of got me started in the alternative world and then allowed me to branch out into other styles as the as the times progressed you know there weren't there weren't blast beats in the 90s so like you know i have a feeling that my my influences in playing would have been a lot different you know i mean there was no travis barker really in the 90s so like you know the that that whole element would have would have shaped me a little differently had that been what i grew up listening to so who were some of the drummers that you were inspired by? Tim Alexander was number one. You know, everybody's cop out for that would be Neil Peart. You know, um, uh, Matt Cameron was a big guy. Dave Abrazuzzi, or uh, uh, before he left Pearl Jam, was pretty amazing. Um, and then, you know, I mean, as a as a kid growing up in the in the late '80s, early '90s, you know, I worshipped Lars Ulrich mm-hmm. until I realized that his whole genre or his whole being is just total bullshit like you know <laughs> and justice for all was like you know the first one of the first records made entirely with pro tools and like you know there's he's sitting there and played just kick drum for like an hour and then they pieced it all together and then you know i started being old enough to go see metallica you know i saw metallica guns and roses faith no more when i was like 11 at rfk stadium in dc and i think it was either blackened or um, Damage Incorporated. I don't remember what song, but Lars played the snare drum on one and three for the whole song. I was like, "What's going on here, dude? Can't you hear what this is?" So you know, uh, there's there, there elements of people that I idolized who I who I then saw or realized that damn these guys know what they're doing, or people that I idolized and then I went and saw or learned the tricks of the trade or heard the stories later on in life and were like, "Wow." It's, it's, it's a like miracle. This dude is who he is. It's a blessing and a curse though, because it's like <laughs> you grow up listening to this stuff before you know how it's really made and how it's put together and you love it so much. And then you find out like these kind of things like studio tricks or whatever that you go see these people live. Once you know better and you're like, Oh, this dude kind of sucks. <laughs> He's not, like he can't pull it off live. And like, that's like definitely to me, was an important element of being in a band and starting a band. I'm like, not that I, you know, I, I appreciate the use of tracks and playback and all that kind of stuff. But for me personally, Oh, Ben's gone. Uh, for me personally, I would only like, I only want to be able to play, write music and play music that we can perform live that we are um, capable of just pulling off no tricks, no, like, whatever. I mean, obviously, in, in studio, there there are some, like, things that you do to, you know, to pull off what you're recording, but everything, especially with our with Knife stuff, is, like, everything that we do is we're able to pull it off, you know, pull it off live. It's a, it's a shame that Ben's not here anymore because, like, in the, in the early stages of Knife stuff, I'm a DJ, too. I've done a lot of DJ tech work. I grew up in the 90s rave scene and stuff like that. So, like, I... uh do a lot of DJ stuff as well. And in some of the earlier knife stuff, I was like, yo, Ben, let's let me do a bunch of DJ stuff on top of this. And we tried experimenting with that for a while. And oh yeah. Some of the old, some of the old demos have like, like DJ sounds. Yeah. I would get, I would get the, the Ableton stems with pro tool stems, whatever. And they'd be like, 
like DJ, what the hell is it? It didn't like unmute the track. I'm like, oh, we're not doing that anymore. I guess we're just doing this live. Experimented (laughs) with a a little bit of that, and we just kind of like took a step back and went, no, we don't want to have all of this, you know, (laughs) fake for a lack of a better term element. We just want to be up there and you know do our thing. If we want to hire a DJ later. Maybe, but we just, you know, just kind of took that element and just pushed it. And just to clarify, because some people don't understand the the kind of how tracks and playback work. They just, they think it's like a Milli Vanilli thing where you just play a track and, you know, it's all fake. But it's really what it is. And tons of bands use it. And your favorite bands, too, they use tracks. It's to add or to, you know, when you're performing live, instead of having... You know, back in the day, you'd hire like string players and, a, and, you know, an additional keyboard player just to pull the stuff off live. And now it's like all those elements, things that you can't, you know, reproduce live. Oh, there he is. Now he's on his phone. Um, <laughs> the things that you can't reproduce live, you know, you, you're going to use tracks for that. And it's not to me, it's like not it's that it has nothing to do with like it's not fake. It's not whatever. It's just a reality of playing music in the year 2021. And, and when everybody's looking for like an excuse to cut tour costs, you yeah. cut one back background musician, you're cutting their pay, their spot on the bus, their flights, their uh, hotel rooms, their, you know, spot in catering, their pass their you know, whatever. So like using a computer, you know, whatever, I mean, Lincoln Park was spending seventy-five, $80,000 on their computer rigs. Um, you know, even buying something like that is saving in the long run exponential amounts of money by not having to hire 30 musicians to cover all the parts that the computers able to do. Now, the, the problem now is that, like the thing that's gone full kind of the wrong way is that I think a lot of like younger bands see that and think that in order to have a successful live show you need to have that element included and i do see like these like bands just starting out with you know with their playback like you know rigs and stuff and i'm like man you guys should really learn to pull off as much as you can first before moving on to that step don't like base a band around i mean you could but it just seems so like you like jump you've jumped ahead too far when you do that I feel like if you start with that, you're going to get exposed when you play live. Well, it's just, it, it becomes, I mean, if that's really going to be part of your sound, then that's part of your sound. But I, I just feel like some bands are just doing it because they think it's something they need to do. And they feel like they need to like have that thing. And I, I never, if it came time for us to incorporate that into our, our live situation, that's fine. I would want someone to run it for us. I don't want to, rely on us doing because like i i think we as a three especially as a three-piece band you're everyone has to be like focused on the thing that they're doing to fill out the sound and make it as close to like what our recorded material is like so out of everything that you guys have written you know to come back full circle when it comes to creating the certain sound that you guys want is it more you know, this is what it's going to be, or are you guys open to experimenting with all the material that you've written when it comes to different types of sounds? You know, like if you guys were to put out a record, each track just sounding the same, or would you want it to sound different? Uh, I'm always looking for like, like, you know, you always want to say some sort of evolution to the, to the growth of a band. But when I'm writing a song, 
I, I kind of always hear our band as a two guitar band. Um, and I'm always adding extra guitar parts just so the song has evolution to it. And, you know, the verse one is a little bit different than verse two. Um, but I still don't, for me personally, I don't see us like in the, the medium term incorporating, you know, a wildly different sound. Um, I might try to get different sounds by using guitar effects and whatnot here and there, but you know, at its core, uh, we're, we're uh, a three piece. We're a three and a half piece. We're, we're a two it, guitar band with one guitar player. And I think stylistically, it doesn't really drift too far from a core of, you know, riff based, melodic riff based, kind of have a more aggressive music. Um, it kind of stays in that wheelhouse, whether it's, you know, some songs might be a little more aggressive and other songs might be a little more melodic in that, it, you know, for lack of a more refined term. But I, I don't, I don't see us like suddenly decide, you know, writing a power ballad. Like that would be real strange, you know? Uh, that'd be funny though. We could try it. What are you, yeah. doing, what are you doing later, Ben? <laughs> Just writing power ballads. Uh, no, but to kind of go back to, and this will be my last question. I don't want to take too much of your guys' time, but to kind of go back to, you know, taking bits and pieces and making it your own thing. You know, you talk about some of your inspirations. Grunge era sounds like, you know, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam for you guys. You know, like great music, great sound, obviously inspirational to many, including you guys. But it was also kind of like a dark era, you know, like Cobain's no longer here. Cornell, unfortunately, no longer here. You know, like you worked with Chester. Unfortunately, he's no longer here. Wyland had his problems. Lane Staley had his problems. How do you guys, you know, again, differentiate, you know, being inspired by heavy grunge metal type music, but at the same time, you know, having your own thing to keep yourselves, you know, balanced and happy as opposed to like getting into it 100%, diving in full force and, you know, creating kind of a toxic environment? Yeah, uh, I don't know if, like, I, I think those bands, well, what's the right way to say it? I, I definitely write from a dark perspective. I think that's just more interesting. Um, but you're not always writing about yourself. I mean, the first song on this new EP, uh, Scammers, I literally wrote that about, uh, like, serial killers and the kind of, like, a whole thing. I wasn't necessarily writing about myself. But then there are other songs where, I'm, where I am coming from a more personal perspective. But I don't think... I think we're just finding the examples of, you know, dark and depressed people, which obviously had a lot of massive success, but there are also plenty of examples of like heavy, dark music from people that aren't, that's not who they are. Um, so I don't think it's, it has to go hand in hand, but it is much more interesting writing from a dark place, heavy music from a dark place than like happy music from a dark place. I do like stuff that is dark though. That sounds happy. Going back to like my love of happy might be the wrong word, but I love the band, the toadies. They kind of have like super that, that first album, it was super catchy and enjoyable to listen to, but there was dark shit going on. Yeah, that's like like Motion City Soundtrack, one of the bands that I worked for, uh, you know, I got my start with. They, they're they notorious for having this like pop, you know, upbeat kind of pop, uh, pop punk, pop rock kind of sound with, you know, keyboards and all this stuff. And the lyrics are super dark about, you know, like, you know, drug addiction and all, you know, just real, like not, not things you'd be like, man, I'm like bopping around, listen to this and also like, oh, God. This guy, this guy needs a hug, you know, that kind of, that kind of feeling. 
I'm mostly responding to what I see around me. I'm not necessarily like writing about how, like my feelings, like how it makes me feel. I'm just taking inspiration from what I see. Uh, and you know, hopefully dark stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Up up until about three years ago, I uh, tried to immerse myself in the most toxic environments and self-destructive shit possible. And so this, um, you know, later after getting my shit together, it's kind of like a, you know, telling the story, the roadmap, how you got through the other side, you know, totally. There's that, there's that version of it too, where you like, you like live through it. And then you're like, here's all the dark shit in song form. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, Warren's dark shit has been some inspiration on some of our songs too. Like I don't, I'm not happy that he had to go through it, but you just kind of be around it and you see it and it's like, okay, like I'm, you know, I'm taking little bits and pieces of this and, you know, commenting on it. I mean, that's very interesting and inspiring because you're able to look back at those dark times from kind of not necessarily a happy perspective, but from a perspective where you're not in that place anymore. You know, like you can look back and analyze it and actually take a lot of things away from it. And that's instead of like a, like a, you know, you're not reminiscing about how horrible it was. You're looking at yourself now and how you achieved, you know, pulling yourself out of that shit. Yeah. And then the, the 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 worst case scenario of that is like a you know like a Lane Staley where you know like an album like Dirt it's like oh this isn't a retrospective thing this is like literally happening to him. he's living through this right now yeah. and it, and it consumed and it consumed him so like <laughs> I don't ever want to be that you know I don't want I don't want to be a live you know a living stereotype of the rocks you know rock guy who let it consume him you know I'd rather someone's like, Ooh, these, this is dark. It's like, yeah, but it's, this is um, a look back on how things used to be or observational. You know, I don't, I don't think I, I don't want to, I don't want to personally live through that, you know, that kind of struggle, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. Well, you guys are definitely, you know, taking those experiences, whether it's, you know, playing your own stuff or, you know, seeing what other musicians are doing when it comes to not only like the vibe of the room, but at the same time, you know, knowing how to act in certain situations, knowing how to react in certain situations, as opposed to, you know, like you just said, like consuming everything. Like Lane Staley just consumed what he was writing, what he was singing about, and it just obviously did not end up... um, that well and you you guys are again you're going to be writing music you're going to be on tour with the bands you guys are with there's going to be a lot of stuff going on like you guys are going to be all over the place you know like there's going to be times where it's going to get frustrating it's going to get very hectic how do you guys kind of you know stay level-headed in that regard like what are some of your guys's you know personal things that you do on the side like ben i think i saw you did uh krav mcgraw or yeah, that's why I was excited when I was able to start going back to that recently. Uh, yeah. That's been fun. Yeah, doing Krav Maga, punching and kicking things. <laughs> it's that that's always been been good. Uh, last year I was yeah jogging a bunch, um, but I mean, when we're on the road, especially and when we're working, you know, you, unless unless somebody's like a musician is kind of being giving you a bad attitude, like whatever happens on stage, just like just don't don't take it with you. Don't let the mistakes happen again. Um, but just kind of don't take it personally. That's good advice for all of life. Don't think, don't take things personally. It's not about you unless it's about you. <laughs> well, you guys are obviously kicking ass and where, where can we find the new EPs? Are they available on all streaming platforms? Yeah. 
Uh, any anywhere that you stream your music, you can find our uh, you can find our EP. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for being gracious enough to take the time out of your day in the last hour or so. Hopefully, I didn't take too much of your time. Uh, keep killing it. Have fun on tour this summer. It's going to be a lot of exciting stuff for you guys. A lot of great experiences. Yeah, it's happy happy to be out there again. <laughs> Catch new episodes of The O Show for free, available on all audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. For full video versions of the podcast, head on over to YouTube and StarWorldWideNetworks.com. The O Show is presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness is an inclusive, high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ Floyd Money Mayweather himself, the best group boxing Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.